Well, the vaccine is giving me hope. I, I honestly can feel that much more so than I did two weeks ago. Like even just two weeks ago, I thought, oh, the, the end is far away. The vaccine is going to be slow to make change. But I don't feel that at the moment. That's Dr. Evan Adams. He's a deputy chief medical officer at Indigenous Services Canada, and he's a proud member of the Tlaamen First Nation near Powell River, British Columbia. He's our guest on the Akamema podcast. Dance Tawao and welcome to the Akamema podcast. I'm your host, Barry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders and community leaders. And today, the leading issue facing First Nations is the latest deadly wave of COVID-19 that's sweeping through our First Nations communities. And just as the vaccines needed to bring the virus under control are beginning to be delivered, our guest is Dr. Evan Adams, a medical doctor and Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Indigenous Service Canada. So, Dr. Evan Adams, a big welcome back to our Akamema podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, and I feel very welcome. Okay. So, Evan, can I call you Evan? Unless you want doctor. Dr. Evan. <laughs> no, no, please call me Evan. Okay, Evan. Since you last came on our Akamema podcast this past summer, First Nations have gone from avoiding the first wave of COVID-19, but now it seems like the numbers are starting to rise amongst our people, especially in the prairie provinces. So what's changed? What do you think is giving to that, that, that rise and increase in these numbers across uh, our, our territories? What do you think is going on? We were so lucky or really smart, uh, both um, in, in the first wave, April, May, June, uh, all the way to August, our numbers were really, really low, like as low as 20 new cases for the whole country in a mm -hmm. week, like 20 new cases in a week. That, that was so low. And now the number of new cases is, well, it's much higher than that, maybe 30 or 40 times higher than that now. So yeah, something has changed. Um, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised because we knew that COVID would spread. It's very catchy, um, and uh, in some ways, we've we've um, uh, when we compare ourselves to the other to other Canadians, um, we've lost some ground. You know, we used to be doing really well compared to other Canadians. Yeah. Uh, now, in some places, we're doing the same, and in other places, we're we're still doing better. Like. Um, the number of new cases, our rate of new cases, is very similar to the Canadian average. But our number of deaths, um, or the rate of um, death from COVID, is lower. And, uh, we just we, we don't know why. We think maybe it's in part because um, uh, our populations are getting COVID younger, and um, younger people survive COVID better than older people. Okay. Yeah. So, when you look at our statistics and uh, the numbers across Canada, it seems like the prairie provinces are, are, are getting hit harder for whatever reason. Do you have any thoughts on that? And, if, and, and, and if it is happening, what do you think is the reason for that? And what more needs to be done? Yeah, so the, the number of uh, First Nations and Inuit cases, um, for First Nations, we're only looking at on reserve. Uh, and for Inuit people, the, we just passed the 10,000 cases ever mark. 
uh, across across the country. Um, so uh, 10,000 cases ever because uh, lots of people get better from COVID. So it's not 10,000 people with COVID now. Mm -hmm. It's just who's ever who's ever had it. I, um, so the the number of um, active cases uh, right now um, in our communities is about 3,200. Uh, and yeah, most of those are in um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And we're and we're wondering why as well. In fact, Manitoba had no on-reserve cases until the end of August, and now uh, now they have. Um, the second most number of uh, First Nations cases in the country, second only to Alberta. So what happened? Um, it hasn't been studied, so we don't know definitively, but we can kind of guess just from looking at the looking at the numbers, mm -hmm. maybe because the communities are so big um, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, it seems to catch a bit more. Um, maybe um, when people uh, were caught with their guard down, more people um, got infected. So like, let's say there's a funeral, uh, people are, let's say they didn't follow uh, public health precautions, and then 200 people get, uh, get COVID. Mm. And, that, and that hasn't been happening with those large numbers and with those kinds of, you know, that's just one event, but it has such a big number of people who are affected. We don't see those kinds of numbers in other um, First Nations communities. So I, so we're just guessing and we're reminding people, particularly in those provinces where there are such high numbers, you have to be, you have to be careful. It's, you know, for instance, now is not a time to be visiting, which is why we were telling people over the holidays, please don't go and visit other households. Please don't uh, travel. And we're telling people wear your, um, wear your mask as often as possible. If you're, yeah. if there's any chance you're going to get close to someone, wear your mask. It's easy. So, so again, and the prayer pro the numbers going up and to all the listeners um yeah uh first wave was pretty good second wave is here the numbers are going up a lot of it the, the, the because of isolation large numbers uh maybe the guards were put down a little bit for different social events and and the spreading just happened and again in in the north especially in the far north there's overcrowded housing and and uh lack of access to bottled water all those conditions combine for are good reasons as to why the numbers start increasing. And uh, so I think that's something that people need to, to understand um, because there's a lot of isolated fly-in communities. And, and I think of Shimadawa, you know, in Northern Manitoba, you know, they have huge numbers going up and it was, a, it was a, a, a dreadful story to hear about that at Shimadawa and Chief Redhead doing all he can to try to deal with that and contain that amongst his people there. And so that message about don't visit, social distancing, wash your hands, wear your masks, always has to be stated and, and, and advertised and shouted from the rooftops to make sure our, our members get that. And, and that's a good reason why you're on today's Akamema podcast. We have to get that message out. Um, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel now with the vaccines you know, that seem to be coming in. You know, and there's talk of Pfizer and Moderna and... Um, you know, that's coming. And so there is some light at the end of the tunnel. And we know there is a priorities for the most uh, vulnerable people to have access, you know, people in old folks homes, elders care homes, you know, and then the frontline workers and then First Nations were in there as well. Can you talk about that in terms of how is it being rolled out? How is it being prioritized? How is the access plan uh, for people? Can you share some thoughts on that? Sure. And um, thanks. 
Uh, thanks for the reminder. A absolutely, the social determinants of health or the social things that contribute to our health and well-being um, are a factor. Things like, uh, you know, if being homeless or um, not having enough food to eat or um, being in a house that's overcrowded or in need of repairs, those absolutely can contribute to catching um, COVID. But I, I didn't mention them because I, I couldn't definitively say that the social determinants of health are lower for um, First Nations in Alberta, Manitoba, and uh, Saskatchewan. However, it's absolutely a contributing factor, and we recognize that. And that's one of the reasons Indigenous populations were named as a priority population, uh, was because uh, uh, because of uh, where they live or how they live or their circumstances, through no fault of their own necessarily, um, they, are, they are at greater risk should they get uh, COVID. So they were um, identified as a priority population along with a few others. And uh, the hope is that we can vaccinate as many of those at risk um, in the first quarter, January, February, March of 2021. And uh, that is primarily um, the adult population because children with COVID actually do pretty well. They have very few complications. And as you probably heard, um, um, much older people don't do so well. Um, their, their mortality can be um, can be quite, uh, quite uh, high. So, th mm -hmm. so they're the first goal. But then there's also other kinds of risks, like um, really remote communities where there's very little um, medical services. If someone gets sick, and then there's no one to support them. So, those remote communities are identified also as being a place where maybe you want to send the vaccine first. So, those first two, um, those the first two um, COVID vaccines. Um, that are going out uh, will go to those. And we have at least five other vaccines that are waiting in the wings. Uh, we're hoping that they're going to come to market soon and we can send those out as well as long uh, uh, with um, you know these more of these other two vaccines that have already been given the okay. Well, maybe just for our listeners, Evan, um, let, let's talk about the vaccines easily, just so the simple layman's res terms. So we talked about Pfizer, but that was a problematic one because it had to be stored at very, very cold temperatures. So that's not the ideal one for our people because transporting it, it was it was a difficult. So there's a challenge with Pfizer. Then there was Moderna, right? That was the other one. And there's another one, isn't there? What's the other one called? Uh, there's the AstraZeneca, I think might be the next one. That one. Yeah. Uh, and that one's been given the okay in the United Kingdom, but not here, not here yet. But hopefully soon. But definitely the Pfizer one, the first one that came um, that came up, a minus seventy-five degrees Celsius requirement, and uh, the manufacturer said we really don't want it to travel once it's on the ground. We don't want you to put it in a truck and send it, you know, to a to a nearby town. So even um, facilities that were close to where um, the drop-off was. Um, we're not considered um, a place where you could get um, uh, vaccinated. But recently, like just in the last few days, um, they're saying, well, maybe we can um, reduce some of those restrictions and we can let it travel a bit. So that's great for us because it means then that um, some First Nations communities that are close to city centers could be using the Pfizer vaccine, not just the Moderna, which travels with them. Um, but also uh, if some of the priority populations are getting um, are getting more easily vaccinated um, using uh, Pfizer, then that frees up the Moderna to travel out to our communities. Okay. Now, which one needed two doses? Oh, they both need two doses. 
Oh, they both need both. So even if you just get one needle in the arm, that's that's step one. You need two needles in the arm, two shots, right? Two. Yeah, and that's a good question. We we thought that um, wouldn't it, um, because the first dose gives you some immunity. Maybe we should give a whole bunch of people some immunity instead of some people really great immunity. So we talked about that. You know, can we skip the second dose? Can we delay the second dose? Should we should we hold? The second dose in reserve like literally put half of the doses in the fridge or the freezer um, so that we can vaccinate the ones who got who've already gotten the first dose so anyway i think i think we're close to deciding and saying um send out all the first doses that you have and um let the supply come in and then people can get the second dose even if it's a little bit late it doesn't have to be right on day 21 or day 28 uh just send it out because that helps more people. More people will have some immunity. Yeah, that makes more sense. Just try to get the the more people with the first dose rather than stockpiling, waiting for the second one to kick in. So that's a good point, though. You you do need two two doses, two vaccines, like to be kicked in uh, for it to have full effect. But start with the one, get as many people uh, vaccinated as you can, and then when the when the supplies come in, and then you did mention so yes, Pfizer, Moderna. AstraZeneca has not yet been approved yet, but that's in the process, and a few other vaccines possibly. So, right. yeah, so, they're in the queue, and they're showing a lot of promise, and we're and we have contracts with them already, and we're we're very hopeful that they'll come up. Um, now, one of the things with these vaccines, there's been some concern, and a lot, even some First Nations chiefs and leaders have said we're not going to take the vaccine because it's so new and it's so fresh and the government just wants to give it to first nations people just to to make us the guinea pigs with this so what about how do we get over that that dispel that myth and that concern or like are there any side effects with these vaccines that we should be aware of uh it's true that the vaccine hasn't been studied as much as we would like but these are emergency this is an emergency situation this is a pretty bad uh, virus. So we've tried to get it um, to people pretty quickly. Like, uh, like for instance, uh, we don't know what will happen if you've been vaccinated for a year because we haven't had it that long, right? So, we, so it's true. We don't know. However, um, there are many, many safety steps throughout uh, the development of the vaccine. We're using technology that we've used before because we have many vaccines, right? We've developed many vaccines in the past. So this is, in a way, a kind of familiar work and also uh, if governments were um using you as guinea pigs they're also using their own elders and their own healthcare workers uh and their own leaders because you know the, the the leaders like uh you know vice president pence uh, have all gotten uh vaccines uh, mm -hmm. probably, probably uh the prime minister has been vaccinated i don't know but uh you know they're or the national chief or the national chief they're considered you know important personnel uh, and so yeah it's a thought, but it's it couldn't possibly be true, could it? That we're experimenting, you know, on our own, yeah, on our own family. So I, I understand the sentiment, but we do need to apply some rigor. That you know, medicine isn't all bad. Medicine has probably saved someone that you know uh, and love. Uh, it's not all bad. Yeah, that's a good message, and that's a good message to our listeners uh, with the vaccines because it's science and it's proven to help people. Now, and you did, and you did ask about side effects. Sorry to interrupt your thought. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly where it's going to go. Yeah, and the, and the vaccine, um, uh, so in this uh, situation, uh, the vaccine makes your body create antibodies to part of the coat of the virus. It's not 
so they don't give you a live virus and get your body to react to it. Um, you're reacting to a piece, uh, like a small piece of the coat. Uh, and so you, after the vaccine, you do feel a little bit sore. Um, some people say they feel uh, a little bit fluey, but that's because your body's mounting an immune response. Um, and and uh, so you're not sick with um, the virus. You're feeling your body gearing up. And so, uh, so for instance, where the injection is, uh, your body will send fluid there because it knows something weird is happening there and your body's creating antibodies. Uh, and so it will feel sore, but that's a good thing. Yeah, it's like <laughs> no, your body's I, getting ready to do battle. It is. It's gearing up. It's arming itself so that yeah. it can fight the virus if you um, face it in the future. Okay. What about if you're on other medications, say for insulin or diabetes or high blood pressure medication or other other medications that you're on? Will this uh, vaccine, if you take it, have impacts on those things? Uh, well, if you have any concerns at all, absolutely speak to your healthcare provider because the vaccinator will ask you. Um, they'll say, you know, have you, is there any reason why we should be concerned about giving you this? So let's say you're someone who has um, who, who's immunocompromised because of, um, let's say, you're taking chemotherapy, or if you're um, someone who's um, hyperallergic, then you will have wanted to speak to a doctor before you get to the vaccinator um, to see if, you know, to measure um, what's the risk if I get COVID, what's the risk if I take this vaccine, and which one is greater, and maybe it's very clear what the answer is, that you should clearly take it or clearly not take it. So we are urging people talk about it um with um diabetes some people can have diabetes and be you know quite well like not even need um, any medication support at all and some have a lot of complications from uh diabetes so they should probably speak to their um, to their caregiver or their healthcare worker uh by and large um there there don't seem to be a lot of cases where um uh, people need to wait because uh, if there if there is any concern, let's say you're allergic to something um, within the vaccine, uh, then you can be told, well, why don't you wait until the second quarter or the third quarter until more data is in, and uh, we'll let you know if we think it's safe or not. So for instance, let's say pregnant women. We haven't studied the vaccine in pregnant women. So someone who's pregnant now, we might say, well, why don't you wait a while? You don't need to do it today. Why don't you do it in April or in June? Or even September, uh, you know, if and see what see what the data is saying to us, because there will be um, we will be watching people who've had the vaccine to see if there are any adverse effects at all. Okay, okay. Now, in in British Columbia, you have the F British Columbia First Nations Health Authority in place and uh, First Nations control, making some decisions for First Nations people, which is always a good thing. And they're saying that probably by the end of March. It's a target that all First Nations, all 203 in British Columbia, 203 First Nations will be vaccinated. And, and that's that's fairly tight time frame because we're already into uh, January. So it's two and a half months time. That's all, all. Can you comment on that for BC? Is that doable? Is that feasible? Uh, which is really good. You know, it's a good quick turnaround. And then I'll question, well, we've got 633 First Nations across Canada and uh what about the other provinces and territories, yeah. you know, and how do we watch and monitor those things? And then the other question, this is a three-part question. What about <laughs> people that live, uh, don't live on the First Nations territory communities on the reserve and live in urban centers? So one, two, and three thoughts going yeah. forward. 
And okay. I, I'm going to answer some of that too, because some of these are political in nature. Yes, aren't they? Uh, so uh, BC is really um, interesting because their um, their First Nations have their own health authority, a First Nations health authority for First Nations people by First Nations people. I used to work there. Now I work um, in Ottawa. So I can't comment directly on how that rollout is going. But the sentiment is extraordinary that uh, the chief medical officer and uh, the CEO of the BC First Nations Health Authority um, sit with the minister and the, the provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, um, around decision-making. And uh, the, um, the NASI guidelines, the guidelines were clear that um, indigenous peoples are a priority population. So they're, they're just talking quite frankly and saying, uh, you're a priority population, let's um, vaccinate as quickly and as easily as possible. In some other jurisdictions, it's been uh, more of a conversation, like in those places where there hasn't been a lot of COVID in indigenous communities, I think maybe they hesitate more. And then I think there was, uh, uh, a, 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 in, in Manitoba specifically, um, the uh, premier asked for more doses because they had a higher proportion of indigenous peoples. And that was a really, difficult conversation that took uh, a few weeks and I, I think a, a few people got black eyes in that one uh, as they tried to figure out well how much more should um, this particular province get because they have a lot of COVID and they have a lot of Indigenous people and how do we and how how much of uh, the vaccine that they get should go to First Nations people so it was a complicated and a very painful discussion I think well, the, well, that's one of the messages we have to our listeners and as well to the provinces and the premiers, if they're listening, is that we know you're getting the, the, the vaccines going out into your provinces and territories, but we're watching as First Nations chiefs and leaders to make sure that it gets to the people uh, as per the, the recommendations, the most vulnerable, which are First Nations people. So we want to make sure that the, the, the vaccines are getting to the right places and to the right people based on the, the, the recommendations coming forth from the, the council that was put in place to deal with this. And so, um, so we want to make sure that, hey, we're watching. We want to make sure that people know that we are lobbying and advocating to make sure that those um, guidelines and rules, procedures are respected, honored, and implemented to make sure our people aren't yeah. to the side. And, and our recommendation um, at First Nations and Inuit Health Branch was that there should be federal, provincial, territorial, indigenous tables uh, where these discussions can happen. And you can include and meet with uh, indigenous leadership. Uh, they're sensible and they want to do what's right. Um, you know, just just meet with them. It's, it's, that's it's, exactly like that's the simple message. Like and, and we know even. Uh, well, even today, the prime minister is talking to the premiers about what we're just talking about, vaccine and the process and the mechanisms for rolling it out. But I have not been invited as national chief, you know, to sit in on those. And so I want to keep encouraging the premiers and federal government officials to keep pushing for provincial and territorial decision-making tables on this, but that include First Nations people as part of that process so that we're not put to the side. So we, I always say you get better decisions, you get better policy, you get better legislation when all voices are heard and sitting around those table, decision-making tables. So we got to keep advocating for that, no question. Yes, it's and it's quite a complicated conversation because some people think uh, when one group goes first, it means they're more important, considered more important than another group that's um, still waiting a bit. 
And that's not it at all. Someone has to go first and we have to make decisions. Even if you think in your own family, let's say there are 10 of you, is grandma gonna go first? And is our nephew who's 21 and six foot three and really strong gonna go last? Like you make that decision together and um, and you, and uh, yeah, and it can only happen with, with conversation. And I, I know it's hard because we're concerned for everyone. You know, um, the nephew's not less important than grandma, but you still have to make a choice. Hmm. So again, in BC, they've got a good process with Bonnie Henry and the BC Health First Nations Health Authority sitting down with federal government officials. You know, um, and so by March, like they're they're hopefully have everybody uh, looked after there. Um, we've got to expand that to all other 633 right across Canada, no question, north, south, east, and west. And then there's that pop. A lot of our like 50% of our people do reside off-reserve are in urban centers. So I have to be careful on my wording and terminology here because there's, you know, not many reserves in the Yukon and uh, two in the Northwest Territories. So, but just for simplistic dialogue here, I'll use the word on-reserve, off-reserve. So what about our off-reserve First Nation citizens, um, you know, that are in large urban centers? Is there any specific plans or strategies to reach them? Um, there, there are in a way in that, um, let's say a community is receiving the vaccine. Um, they have some ability to say, we would like our off reserve members to be included, um, in the vaccination plans. Like we can call them, um, home within reason, of course, you know, if they live um, in Australia, then no, maybe they can't come and receive uh, a vaccine, but, uh, you know, maybe if they live in town or if they have married into a community not too far away, maybe they could come over. Like it has to be an option for your off-reserve members. Mm -hmm. And um, some communities are saying, well, lots of um, non-members marry our members. Like, you know, we're not all marrying um, someone down the street. Maybe like, let's say you do marry someone from a community, a First Nations community, a hundred kilometers away. They live in your house. You know, one's the mom and one's the dad. You don't just vaccinate the member. Like, let's say it's dad. You don't just vaccinate dad and then leave mom out because she's a member of another community and let her wait till her community comes up. Like, that doesn't make any sense medically, like from an infection point of view. So some communities are saying we will um, vaccinate residents of our communities, like residents of our reserves or our territories. That makes total sense. So residents, rather than just your band members or citizens, it's the residents that are living in your territory. And uh, th that'd be a really wise approach to do that. And that makes perfect I, sense. I, th I think that's one of the more sensible. And I, I try and entertain all thoughts because some people are saying, oh, the non-native non members shouldn't get vaccinated. And, and I'm always trying to be like, well, it's a, it's a resource. We're trying to decide who will go will go first and and uh, maybe instead of excluding um, non-members you might just say uh, let's vaccinate people who are 40 and over first because they have the most risk so um, the younger ones can wait in some places they're saying anyone who's an adult will go um, and be vaccinated and in some places they're saying no we're going to start with 65 and older and then come back and we'll do you know the next group let's say 55 and older and then we'll come back and then 45 and older. So it just differs from place to place. And you can see. So um, it, does it differ from province to province? Our first nation to first nation? What are you saying? Like when you say that some are looking at 65 plus first, some are looking at 50 plus first. Like, so it varies right yes. across. 
It does vary because um, um, Canada is starting with 80 and over, and some communities might go with that. And some communities are saying, actually, we have hardly any people who are 80 and over. Let's start with 65 and over. And some communities, uh, um, yeah, they're saying uh, 65 and older means that we can have what little vaccine we have. We can spread it out in lots of different places for those much older people. And some are saying, well, our villages are small. So if we fly in a bunch of vaccines, uh, we can't just vaccinate 65 and older. That's only 10 people. And uh, why don't we just vaccinate everyone at once so we don't have to come back to this uh, village? And that makes sense, right? From the that makes sense as well. Logistics point of view. So it does differ from community. Hmm. Well, we're already into January of 2021 and uh, we're into the second wave and and the, the light that everybody was talking about was and the hope was that the vaccines are on the way. And so we've talked about Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and there might be a few others that are approved. So that's providing some hope for our people. Is there anything else, even as the COVID numbers seem to be worse, worsening a little bit, you know, and it's, especially in the Prairie Provinces, in addition to the vaccines, uh, Evan, is there anything else that you can think of that um, gives hope to our people? Because I always try to provide and, and wrap up on my academic podcast sessions something to give our listeners hope. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? Well, the vaccine is giving me hope, but uh, it's more like um, my parents will have the vaccine soon and I will have less to worry about because I worry really about them um, more than me. And I think that once they're preserved and they're the heart of the family, of our family, uh, there's much less to be um, concerned with. And I just know it's going to get better and better and better. And I, I honestly can uh, feel that. I, I can feel the hope uh, much more so than I did two weeks ago. Like even just two weeks ago, I thought, oh, the, the end is far away. The vaccine is going to be slow to make change. I don't feel that at the moment. So I, I hope people will cast forward or are able to imagine um, when we will be full again. I think the world will be different. Um, I'm kind of letting go of my memories of what it used to be like. I don't know if mm -hmm. it'll ever be like that again. And I'm just embracing a new reality, which includes my parents are safe. Lots of people will be safe. And, uh, this, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a better time for us. Hmm. What a great way to end our, our podcast. Dr. Evan Adams, thank you so much for coming on our Akamegma podcast. Thank you. Nice to see you. And congrats on all your on all your work. I know that this work doesn't get um, done uh, all by itself and that you've been a part of it, having conversation after conversation and asking leadership to, um, to, to honor those recommendations to have our people vaccinated. So thank you. And for all your other work, my gosh. No, well, this is with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, um, you know, our message, we can't say enough about the need for social distancing, the need to keep washing your hands, the need to wear your masks, like that, that has to be constant. And, uh, and, and life in Canada and the world has changed because of COVID-19. And it will, may never get back to the way we, it used to be. But I would say you embrace change and uh, change is inevitable. It's how you deal with it and adapt. And uh, as First Nations people, we, we're very adaptable and resilient people. And it's through uh, people like you that help give hope to our people from my perspective, you know. Uh, so again, thank you so much, Dr. Evan Adams. And uh, Godspeed, and we'll be talking soon. Yes, talk soon.
And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Bellgarden, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.